Welcome to Authentic Health Fridays on The Jason Wright Show. This segment empowers you to reclaim control over your well-being and live a life aligned with your body's natural design. I am thrilled to guide you through insightful conversations and practical advice, all geared towards helping you achieve the vibrant and balanced life you deserve. In this dynamic series, we have the privilege of tapping into the expertise of a true visionary in the field of health and wellness, Dr. Gus Vickery, the founder of Authentic Health, located in the scenic heart of Asheville, North Carolina, is more than just a renowned author and speaker. He's a beacon of wisdom in the world of precision medicine and integrated health. Each episode, Dr. Vickery will be your trusted companion on a journey to unlock the secrets of authentic health. Drawing from his extensive knowledge and expertise, he'll share invaluable tools, tips, and information to guide you in understanding your body's unique needs and embracing the principles of precision medicine. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Authentic Health Friday. In this episode, Dr. Gus and I are going to be talking about something that is incredibly important to longevity and overall health and well-being. That is your glucose management as well as metabolic health and how those two play a role in sync with one another. Now, I want to remind you, if you have not listened to any of the other episodes, please go back and start at the beginning. Dr. Gus has designed these episodes to basically be in a building block structure, starting with the foundations, which was gut health, and then working our way forward. So this is literally designed by Dr. Gus to give you the tools and the roadmap to take control of your health in a precise manner, the exact same way he walks his own patients through their their health and wellness in, in his clinic. So please go back, listen to those episodes. If this is your first time, listen to the episode, but work your way back up and it'll all make a lot more sense and it'll give you a great, great roadmap for your health. So thank you so much for listening to the Jason Wright Show, Authentic Health Friday. We're going to be here every Friday, Dr. Gus and I. And if you have any questions, please go to jasonrightnow.com, go to the contact sheet, ask the questions, Follow me on Instagram at Jason right now and DM me any question you might have. I will get that to Dr. Gus and we'll answer it on the show. We want this to be interactive. We want to do everything we can to give you the tools and the protocols that you need to truly take control of your health. So that being said, enjoy this episode with Dr. Gus Vickery of Authentic Health Fridays on the Jason Wright Show, talking about glucose management and metabolic health. Thanks for listening. Dr. Gus, we're back for another Authentic Health Friday. I missed you, brothers. Good to have you back. Yeah, and it's good to be back with you, Jason, as well. I know you had the jet set all over the country with all the important projects you're working on. Yes, I'm you're, very important. I'm very important. I'm very needed. Yeah, you're a salt after man. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I do what I can. I just I want to be there for for those who need me. That's that's mm -hmm. what I do. It was a lot of fun, though. I got to go out to your old stopping grounds uh, near Vinings. I actually went through Vinings. Um, and got to hang out with Rylan, uh, for one of my business meetings I had out in Atlanta, GA, which was fun. And, uh, it was funny cause I had not been out there in so long and I don't know when the last time you went out there was, but it's all grown up and it's like everything else. I, I, they, whenever I was working in Vinings, they were just starting to build some like nice townhomes and that sort of thing. It was still like real quaint and kind of just kind of 
out, you know, little bedroom community of Atlanta. But now, man, the city has uh, has just kind of engulfed Vinings like everything else. Yeah, it was. Uh, I grew up in the Smyrna proper. And yeah. Then in mid- middle school, my parents built a little home in a back section of Vinings proper, the, the section that's just across the Chattahoochee. Yeah. But it yeah. was a little, it was a little road loop, Woodland Brook Road and then uh, Brookview Drive that didn't have like gigantic mansions and things, just simple family homes that would mm-hmm. go back. My parents actually built a home that was partially solar. <laughs> they were still, really? you know, kind of, yeah, they were, you know, kind of earth-minded folks and things like that. And it was a nice place to live. It was all woods and pretty, and we rode our bikes along the railroad tracks to a place called Fox Mountain, which were a series of big dirt pits that we could ride, play ride BMX-style stuff and things. and. Anyway, that's what it was back then. It really, really blew up from that time. Yeah. Well, they love it. Uh, she loves being out there. And so it was, it was fun to visit. And well, let's, let's just jump in. Okay. So going through our foundational series on authentic health for the listeners, today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is uh, glucose and management and metabolic health. It's so critical. I've mentioned it before ad nauseum, but I got to mention again, this is really something that I probably took for granted. And it's, it's, it was kind of at the very beginning of my real diehard uh, biohacking, you know, health journey, whatever you want to call it that I'm on now. When Abby was diagnosed with type one diabetes, I did not realize what uh, the, the impact that glucose and, and insulin, insulin in particular, my goodness, uh, how, what what an impact it has on your body. And so to the listener out there, in, in my opinion, understanding and grasping the topics that we're going to discuss today are one of the single most critical aspects of your health. And especially as it relates to aging, you know, glucose variability being something that is so important. And so with that, Dr. Gus, where do we want to start this conversation? Um. I think foundation that we can talk about why blood glucose is so important, kind of what it is and, you know, what difference it makes if it's stable. Yep. How you feel in your health and what difference it makes when it's falling up and yep. down. And I think most people probably understand. And I, um, when I went through my medical training and early part of my career, I was just doing, you know, traditional medicine. And so we treated a lot of diabetes. We were, we were taught a lot about diabetes, both type one and type two in medical school. And and we were taught about the uh, development of insulin resistance and that individuals would then end up with dysregulated blood glucose. Their blood sugar would be too high and the health impacts of that, including long-term, of course, uh, damage to the retina and what's called retinopathy and blindness eventually and neuropathy, painful nerve inflammation of the legs, uh, the damage to arteries and the kidneys leading to kidney disease and dialysis, damage to arteries in the legs leading to peripheral arterial disease and ulcers and amputations, and of course, heart disease and other things. And so it was this, you know, big area of uh, study for us because it had so much an impact on health over time for human beings. And we were, you know, taught some of the tools and medicines we could use and how to evaluate it. Now, the evaluation was basically uh, a fasting blood glucose. If the fasting blood glucose was elevated at beyond a certain level, and at that time it was 140 was the cutoff. It's now 126. 
then that would be an indication to look deeper and see is this person potentially a type 2 diabetic. But until it reached that level, then it was not recommended you did any other investigation. You just left it alone. And as I began to do some of the deeper work in the areas of metabolic health and preventative cardiology and lipidology, and also dovetailing into that, helping people try to lose excess fat, um, I began to see that there were all these markers that could indicate the development of insulin resistance and dysregulated glucose long before you saw a fasting blood glucose that. So you could see it in lipid particle shifts. You could see changes in the different types of the particles and sizes of the particles and those ratios that were strong indicators of insulin resistance before blood glucose even showed up as a, as a signal at all. And then you could see it in fasting insulin levels before you might see it in a glucose level. And you can certainly see it in what's called a glucose tolerance test or a glucose insulin tolerance test. And as I was doing the deeper workup where we had all the lipid particles and we had a fasting insulin and we had a hemoglobin A1C, what I realized was that most of the people that I was initiating work with already had insulin resistance. So they didn't have type 2 diabetes. They didn't have what someone would have said was a blood sugar problem yet, but they already had the type of dysregulation in the body that was going to eventually become type 2 diabetes, whether in five years, 10 years, or one year. And as I began to dig more deeply into that topic, uh, looking at the population health understanding of insulin resistance, and when they test populations using more sensitive tools that you know, like 80% of people under the, over, over the age of 20 are already insulin resistant to some extent. They're already moving in that direction. I thought, wow, that doesn't make sense. Uh, young, healthy people are already insulin resistant. Well, part of what we learned is that it is a natural part of aging for you to develop some degree of insulin resistance and for your blood sugar to rise as you age. So there's an aspect of aging no matter how healthy you are, where you're likely going to have slow increases in blood sugar and some uh, diminishment in your insulin sensitivity, how responsive your cells are to the signal of insulin. Um, there are also genetics that can predict whether or not you're more likely to have an issue just associated with aging, whether you're higher risk. And so we were able to begin to look at those types of factors. And I realized that this was just a very important not just an issue about, hey, how do we manage type 2 diabetes or how do we prevent type 2 diabetes, although that's incredibly important. This is an issue of how we push the diseases of aging way downstream because glucose, which is a sugar right, that we consume in our diet and our body can produce through certain pathways called gluconeogenesis, is a, is a main source, not a main, it is a significant source of energy for our cells. Our bodies and the mitochondria we talk a lot about can combust different forms of carbon with oxygen to make energy. ATP is what it's called. And so glucose is one of those main forms of carbon. It's a ring molecule. We get it from food, carbohydrates, starches, sugars. Now, there's different simple sugars, uh, fructose and glucose and you know, sucrose table sugar is a blend of each. And that's beyond the scope of what I'm going to talk about here. We're really just focused on glucose regulation. But nonetheless, um, you know, anytime we consume foods that have starches, you know, it, whether that's cereals, grains, pastas, breads, potatoes, any form of starch whatsoever, rice, even beans, they have starch. 
or sugars, fruits, or you know, sugar-added foods, or pure sugar foods, or whatever, fruit juice, sugar-sweetened beverages, sugar is moved into our gut and absorbed into our bloodstream. And our body is, is designed to detect that and then secrete a hormone, insulin, which is the, uh, which is the orchestrator. It goes out, it, or the conductor to see to it that cells recognize that there is there are nutrients available in the bloodstream and we should open and take them up because for the most part with a little bit of exception you don't just have the new the the you know the fatty acid or the glucose or whatever just diffuse straight across the membrane of the cell you bring it in via transport and so glucose is actively transported into the cell where it can be used as a source of energy now ideally in a human system when you receive a glucose load from any form of food or beverage, your body would rapidly clear that from your bloodstream. So your blood sugar might go from resting at 70 and it might rise to 110, but it's already then being brought back down underneath 100 pretty quickly. And that's critical because when blood glucose spikes, when it starts going really above some say 120, but certainly above 140, that higher level of glucose begins to damage structures. It does it in multiple ways, but one of the main ones is called glycation. The glucose itself will bind to things like proteins um, and enzymes and fatty acids, and it begins to structurally change those things and damage those, and they can become pro-inflammatory or mutagenic. Glucose at higher levels will actively damage the lining of your artery, the endothelium, and its protective glycocalyx. And that's why higher you know, glucose exposures over time are associated with an increase in arterial disease. The higher glucose is damaging. It's also damaging to neurons. And so this repeated exposure to high glucose levels, even in brief periods, is very damaging to our body over time. And so we have a system in place to see to it that it doesn't happen. But as we're aging, the system doesn't work as well. And our modern diets have so much more sugar and starch that are in unnatural forms, meaning almost pre-digested. They're not, they don't contain the level of fiber and protein that we, where we used to have to chew it up thoroughly and pre-digest it with, with enzymes that break down starch in our saliva, break it down into smaller components, get it down into the stomach, have the stomach working it over, and then slowly getting that absorption into the body. Instead, now it's like we're mainlining it. It's just dropping into the gut and dropping into the bloodstream, and you end up with a blood glucose going up to 150 or 160, which is very common in my patients who don't have diabetes when we do a continuous glucose monitor. And then it might take an hour to clear, but that entire hour, they're damaging their body. And if that happens multiple times a day, every day, year after year, you can imagine what the additive effect over time on arterial disease, uh, you know, damage to other structures in the body, um, it, you know, the potential risk of a dementia, dementing disease, immune system dysfunction, all the same things we keep talking about. So it's critical that we understand this impact of glucose on our system, that we have systems in place to regulate it, how, different ways that those systems can uh, kind of misfire, so to speak, not function well, which can predispose us to having higher blood sugar and what we can do again, begin to do to bring that under control. Generally speaking, uh, barring the insults to the pancreas like type 1 diabetes or extreme age, 
in an ancestral diet, we didn't have this problem. We didn't have this exposure to high frequency eating with high carb, low fiber foods and sugar added foods that has put so much stress on this system that now the average 20 year old has some degree of insulin resistance already, uh, even uh, at, at that young age. And so uh, an indicator also is, I guess, weight. Where, where, why does this happen? So I know that um, we talk a lot about the nutritional aspect of it. And generally, when at least when I do, and I, don't, I hope I'm not stereotyping or saying anything politically incorrect, but when I think of someone with type 2 diabetes, I'm thinking of someone who is o- overweight, even if not, not even necessarily obese, because they have become insulin resistant. So kind of let's talk about from a dietary standpoint and a nutritional standpoint, how does one start to, even if, if we have, now, when you talk about the younger people that are showing signs of this, are these uh, young people that look over, that are overweight? Because we see like people that are overweight at a much, or metabolically challenged at a much younger age now. So are generally in all age groups, is it pretty much indicative of insulin resistance because, you know, if they seem to be quite a bit overweight or could it be just a perfectly normal person? I mean, what is that? How do you start to kind of measure on your own, just eyeball it yourself after listening to this podcast and go, oh my goodness, I might be insulin resistant. How does that factor? Yeah. So for some people, it can be associated with excess body fat and it can be part of the problem. And also the excess body fat can be creating the problem too. So it's all kind of intertwined. The actual, well, one of the studies that I'm referencing that was done at Cornell University on young college students was using the more sophisticated method of insulin glucose tolerance testing uh, was done on lean college students. So these were individuals that were not overweight. Now, the one commonality was they were sedentary based on their initial surveys for the research. That was one of the qualifiers. And so what they found was that lean college students that were mostly sedentary, not exercising in a structured way, you know, 80% of them had insulin resistance. Wow. Then they they subdivide them. And one group had three episodes of some type of aerobic exercise each week for 45 minutes at moderate intensity. So it wasn't go to CrossFit. It wasn't like kill yourself. It was just, you know, let's move you some at least 45 minutes, three times a week. And then at the end of the period of time, and I believe it was 12 weeks, I haven't looked at this in a while. um, The group that was uh, triaged to the exercise, I cannot remember the number, but it was a massive, like they had reversed the insulin resistance, whereas the group who was still sedentary had not. So, you know, that just pointed to the fact that if one, the problem, we could do a whole lot more, we could prevent a lot more diabetes by raising awareness earlier in life that this is already happening based on a lot of factors, excess consumption of food and sugar, timing of eating, eating later at night, uh, consuming alcohol, excess alcohol and eating all throughout the evening, and uh, also uh, just being sedentary, not moving, and many other factors that, and if, you know, people simply, you know, add to, change one of those variables. Well, let's make sure we get our exercise. We could already be reversing that state and slowing that potential progression into a diabetic state at some point in the future. I have had out of control, like really highly inflamed type 2 diabetics that have significant weight problems. Most of them have excess body fat. They're not all obese. 
And I've had very lean people, very, very lean, who have out-of-control diabetes. They had a different genetic set point for body fat accumulation. Their body's set point for body fat accumulation was very low. It wasn't that they were eating healthy. It wasn't that they were doing all the right things. They were eating poor quality foods. They were eating at the wrong times. They were probably overeating a lot of the time. Their body was just dumping and catabolizing the energy. They were you know, fidgeting, high energy, kind of manic source of folks. But yet their blood data showed terrible, terrible insulin resistance and blood glucose dysregulation. But most people who have that problem will likely have excess body fat especially the visceral fat tucked into the abdominal and thoracic cavities around the organs. All right. So can I take from that, that if I find myself in, you know, I go and my A1C is pretty high and high is now anything over five. Is that right? No, no. What would be considered ranges of a normal A1C would be up to 5.6. I look okay. at, I think about when you're getting to 5.5, 5.6, that's possibly, that's at least borderline problematic. Yeah. You know, okay. I'd, I'd want to get it lower. I wouldn't want to hang around that edge. Pre-diabetic is 5.7 to 6.4. If you're 6.5 or above, you're really diabetic at that point. Okay. And so these, these different cutoffs. And so, uh, and by the way, an A1C is a very helpful metric. It's a, but it's a 90 day average. So if you're, you know, getting it, uh, you know, uh, two weeks after you started a low sugar diet, and it was high before, you're not going to see a whole lot of change yet. You really need to wait a few months to measure change. And the other thing is that it, this is something you need to think too much about, but it can be impacted by how much hemoglobin you have in your bloodstream. So if you, for some reason, start producing a lot more hemoglobin, some people that happens when they go on to testosterone therapy, that will, because you're measuring the glycation of the hemoglobin that's associated with the red blood cells. So suddenly you have a whole lot more hemoglobin. That might bring it down. If you're a little anemic or borderline or you just ate blood, that can affect it too. So those are just nuances to make sure that if your doctor tells you your hemoglobin A1C appears borderline, make sure they've looked at your blood count as well and that it's not based on just a shift in that, that particular thing. There, it, it's a little more complicated than just the straight up metric, but most of the time in regular healthy people, the metric will be representative of their average blood glucose over the last 90 days. Okay. So I go and I'm, it's, it's creeping up. My physician tells me, Hey, you got to do something. Uh, so does that mean that obviously I probably need to change my diet, but would you suggest that if I go and I mean, it's going to be sound, this is going to sound like kind of, kind of captain obvious, but if one of your patients walks in and their hemoglobin A1C is to the point where you're, you're troubled by the number, are you going to tell them, all right, you've got to get moving. You've got to get moving. And if you're, you know, is that one of the things that you're going to go to is start have them move first or change their diet first? Or do you kind of put a holistic plan together? I mean, kind of look at those tiny habits where, because this could be a completely life-changing situation, especially for the, a lot of the average Americans now, they're, it's a double whammy. They're eating horrible, you know, processed foods, full of sugar and all that crap. And they're in a car all the time, maybe not by any fault. They, maybe they commute and they go home and they sit. So they're sedentary, they're eating bad things. So I got to try one thing to start Re, you know, kind of ratcheting this back, where do I start first, Gus? That's a great question. So the answer, of course, is uh, for what I want to do is option three, tiny habits. Let's examine your approach to eating. What are you eating? When are you eating it? How much are you eating? 
you know, snacking. And let's see what's the lowest hanging fruit there. Yeah. And then uh, most commonly it's let's not stop snacking after if we can do that's mm -hmm. what one of the most important things that people can do. And then we're going to look at their movement. All right. Can we get you walking? Can we get you weight training? You know, what, what's the first thing? And we're going to look at it in tiny little habits and create change. But to the other question you asked, if they came, if they said to me, I can only change one thing right now. I'll either start an exercise program and I'll do it or I'll begin to create the dietary changes and I'll do that, but I will not do both at the same time. My answer up until a couple of years ago would have been, well, then let's change your diet and just you know, move around more. But now that answer is definitely different. My answer will be, let's get you moving. We have so much data now that supports the exercise especially the different types of exercise, which we'll be doing plenty of discussions around that. But increased overall physical activity, everything from walking to higher intensity intervals to some weight training to anything we can get them doing, including things like yoga that might be more intense. That is going to do a lot more across the whole spectrum of health improvement than simply improving your nutrition. You've got to do both in the end. But if I could only choose one, I'm going to get them moving and I'm going to try to get them moving all as much as they're willing to with some higher intensity stuff, because we're going to see a lot more, we're going to see a lot more improvements in those insulin resistance metrics and blood glucose control through exercise. And that's exactly, honestly, I didn't know what you were going to say, but that just seems to be the overwhelming evidence of better health is, is movement first. And so I guess my question to that would be, again, perfect world. This is like just the most teachable, trainable patient that you've ever had. Are you going to, and they say, I will do any exercise that you ask me to, Gus. Are you going to have them start doing resistance training, cardio, walking? If you can pick from your buffet of movements, where do they start as it relates to targeting glucose management? Yeah. So, our, by the way, I actually have that patient. His name is Jason Wright. <laughs> I'll do whatever you ask. I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty teachable guy. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, but I'm going to, if I can, I want, it's hard to, to say this because one, just overall movement period is so important. Standing more than you sit, moving around, stretching, using your body, fidgeting a little bit, tapping your feet, just more movement has so much yield. It burns a lot of calories. It increases, so it increases metabolic rate. You use more blood glucose, you feel better. And I definitely just want them to move more. And most people can figure out how to pattern that in. Most people can at least do two things. One, just move more. You're watching television in the evening with your wife, stand up and walk around the living room a little bit while you do it, or do some stretches. Most people will start doing that and find that they feel so much better and then it becomes a habit. But if I'm going to get them into the structured exercise piece, which I'm going to, then I want them doing something to activate their muscles because the muscle tissue is the biggest glucose sink in the body. The more activated muscle we have and the more we're using it, the more we're burning through glucose, basically burning through the glucose stored in the muscles, the muscle glycogen, and that just opens that up as a place to deliver more glucose. So if you've emptied out your glycogen tank by doing intensive muscle exercises, and then you go eat a high glucose or high sugar food, I'd still not recommend you do that. 
but you've basically created this sort of vacuum for the glucose. Your muscles want to replenish that glycogen. They want that energy stored in there because that's their short acting source of energy in the event that suddenly you're in, in peril. You've got to run. You got to do something. It's like your life is on the line. So the muscles want to have access to that energy. And so we have a small amount stored in all of our muscle fibers. And then the rest we keep in the liver so we can help regulate blood glucose so that if we're getting depleted and what was already available, we can drip it out of the liver and keep making sure that we have glucose for other tissues. So when you activate and train muscles and you dump the glycogen out of your muscles to some extent, what will happen is the, the glucose that comes into your body, you will just, you know, the insulin gets produced, the muscles listen, and you just basically open up those cells and you just pour that stuff in. And it really will clear glucose much faster. And as you age, the more muscle you have, the lower blood sugar that you have, the more protected you are from these metabolic issues. So I'm going to try and get most people into muscle training. But if I can get them combining muscle and high intensity interval, meaning more of a rapid pace strength workout, you know, those types of workouts where I feel like they're safe for it, then I'm going to get them to try and do both together at least a few times a week. As a starting place, so, you know, 30 minutes where they're doing circuit training at a fast pace where they're both getting their uh, cardiopulmonary training in and their heart rates up and they're breathing heavy, but they're also taking their muscles through all those different exercises. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it also answers the question because I'm sure some of these people have heard, especially if they've listened to me, if I will go before a big fatty meal, say Pasta J's in Boulder, Colorado, and I'll go to the bathroom and I'll crush 40 air squats, and then when I'm done, wait about 15 minutes, I need to go for at least a 15-minute walk or, or or do 40 more air squats before and after the meal. And so to the listener out there, they they hear that, and they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense because they, they naturally, just like I was at one time, they think there's no way you can burn enough calories. They just associate, you know, offsetting what you eat with how many calories you burn and so what you just described is creating that deficit of glycogen in the muscles and basically creating these reservoirs that are, that need some rain. And if you put it in there, because if now take us through this conversation. So if you don't fill those, uh, glycogen reservoirs, when you eat, let's say that you don't do anything, you just get up off the couch, you hop in the car, then you go to pasta J's Boulder, Colorado, best Italian food in all of Boulder in, and, and in, instead you just, you just ride, you sit, you do nothing. Then where does all that extra glucose, how does it travel to the body and where does it get stored doc? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so the, uh, first you did say when you go eat a big fatty meal, I think you meant to say a big carbohydrate. Well, it's, it, no, it's got it all. I did say fatty, but I'm talking about, we got pasta, we got fat. Yeah. So I got carbs, I got fat, I got all the, I'm going to have a big old bunch of bread. Yeah. You know, cause if it was, if it's just a big, you know, steak, if it's just a big car carnivore dinner, I wouldn't be so worried about it. Yeah. Cause if it had no carbs yeah, and, and just a little protein, you're not going to see a big change in your blood glucose. But right. answer the question. If you were to go and do those air squats, what you're doing is you're just making sure you've emptied out that glycogen tank a little bit. And you can empty it to some extent. They've done studies demonstrating it will drop your glucose, you know, a nominal amount. But it, it's, it's, it's something that matters. You know, it's meaningful. And then, you know, uh, the other side of that coin, and I think you probably got around to this, is if after you eat, you take a walk, you're likely to much more rapidly lower your blood glucose than just sit down. 
Now, if you basically ate your breakfast, went to work, sat at your desk, ate your lunch, had your afternoon snack or sugary beverage, uh, moved around the office a little bit, you go, and then you get in the car and you drive to the restaurant and then you go and eat that meal. So you basically have consumed energy all day long. You've burned very little. Your glycogen tanks are full. Your liver glycogen is probably full. Where are you going to put that glucose? Because you don't really need it in the cells. They've got plenty already. So you're going to eat it. First, it's going to go into the bloodstream. You're going to get a big insulin response. Now, the to some extent, you'll be able to take some of it up because the cells will take some up just to go ahead and use right now. We'll go ahead and move some of it in. But the rest of it, if there's no place to store it, it's going to get converted to fat. Hmm. Your body will rapidly convert sugar to fat. And that's one of the things you learn about when you study uh, the molecular biology of nutrition is how interchangeable these components components can become. Not 100%, but that you can make amino acids into glucose. You, know, you can make ketones off the back of fatty acids and protein and potentially end up with, uh, you know, a usable form of energy. You can uh, convert glucose to fatty acids and store it as fat energy. Like there's a whole lot of like, dynamic interplay. Your body is amazing and has figured this out because there were times in an ancestral, you know, period where we didn't have, we didn't overeat consistently at all. In fact, if anything, we were underfed, but then when we killed that large animal, we ate a lot. And the body didn't want to just waste it. So it figured out how to put it in different compartments and store it. But mostly we're storing it as fat. Now, let's just say you keep doing that after, after day. For the most part, you don't get a lot of exercise and you eat consistently. Well, you're going to keep storing fat and storing fat. And you're going to keep putting pressure on your metabolic systems, meaning insulin surge, manage the glucose. Where are we going to put it? Oh, it's going to take a while. The glucose is higher in the bloodstream. You're damaging your body. And then Two hours later, before you've even cleared all the glucose from the last meal, another glucose surge, another insulin surge, and then another and another. And then, of course, what's happening is you're already beginning to develop that uh, insensitivity, that resistance to the signal of insulin. So now your cells aren't listening to the signal because the insulin's always high. And then it has to go even higher to try and create a louder signal, which results in all kinds of problems downstream. Chronic high insulin creates wreaks havoc on the human system, so we don't want that. But we we get to a point where our fat cells are as fat as they're going to get, and that's different for all of us. The lean person I described earlier, maybe that's 10, 12% body fat. That's all he's going to get, and then he's not going to put any more fat in all that cutaneous, all those cutaneous fat reserves. And somebody else might be 30, 40 pounds, another person 60, another person 200. A lot of that's genetically determined. We hit that point, fat cells say, we're done. We're not growing anymore. We won't take any more. Where are we going to put the fat now? Well, we're going to start tucking it into the liver and around the pancreas and around the heart and around other organs. And we're going to get a buildup of all this fat inside the body where it's not supposed to be, which really starts creating problems. Fatty liver disease. So fatty liver is a you know, there are other reasons for fatty liver, including alcohol-induced fatty liver, but fatty liver is mostly a part of the umbrella of metabolic diseases. The combination of fatty liver, excess body fat, insulin resistance, dysregulated glucose, dysregulated blood pressure, and 
hyperuricemia or uric acid issues causing gout and arthritis. Those are all tied together as one syndrome, right? You, uh, you can address the entire thing with, a, with virtually the same protocol and, and reverse it all together. But that's where the body, what the body's gonna do. It's gonna continue to try to find ways to move the glucose wherever it can put it. And if the tank is full, it's gonna convert it to fat. Okay, well then, here's what I'm gonna do, Dr. Gus, because I am a believer that if I just let my pancreas rest and never have to create any insulin, that it will be so sensitive then just the least little bit of glucose in my system is gonna just make that sucker scream and, and my body's gonna hear it, it's gonna be effective, everything's gonna calm down and function perfectly. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go on a lifelong keto diet, all meat, all protein, no carbs whatsoever, no fructose, no, no, nothing. I am no sucrose, fruct fructose, none of it. I'm just going, because I know that if I just never use my pancreas, then everything will be perfect. Right? <laughs> well, if you were as seriously obese, type two diabetic with severe blood glucose disarray, dysregulation that has high, sky high insulin, we might be able to use that strategy for a couple of years solid <laughs> to okay. get a system back to normal homeostasis. But for you, Jason, right, the end result of that. Now, if you go keto when you do true keto, meaning moderate protein, because you could do high protein keto and your body will actually create a lot, you create mm -hmm. a decent signal from that and create glucose off the extra amino acids. And that's a different scenario. So we're going to talk about true keto, where you're maintaining very low overall blood glucose and low, and low stimulation for your pancreas, uh, minimal amounts of protein to provide the body what it needs. In that particular scenario, initially, you might feel like you're more insulin responsive. You know, you might improve metabolic flexibility if you're not already metabolically flexible, meaning your body's ability just to switch energy sources and switch between all its different tools. And allow you to seamlessly move from this to that or the other, which is wonderful. We should all strive to have that. But eventually what's going to happen is you're going to get low insulin. You're going to have this low insulin signal. And people think, great, you know, I'd have patients who would come in and their insulin would be one or two. And they'd be like, hey, look, that's awesome. I have low insulin because they're listening to all the keto podcasts with many of which are excellent with great information. I'm not criticizing them. And they would, you know, they're trying to address the problem of inappropriately high insulin because the medical range on your test might say if it's under 20, it's normal. And at 16, it's like, no, that's high insulin. You know, the, the normal range is really, from my perspective at this time, I would say, you know, somewhere between five to seven is optimal. You know, I'll take down to four and maybe up to eight or nine, depending on what the A1C and the glucose is, because it's a dynamic variable. You don't want to overinterpret it. And if all the other metrics look great, we're probably good. But when it's down around a one or a two, um, what will happen over time, and there are studies to support this, is you'll actually start having a potential increase in your blood glucose over time because eventually at some point you're going to end up eating something. And maybe you never do, but you're going to eat something that has carbs. Or you're going to eat more protein and you're going to convert some to glucose. Or you're going to need the insulin for moving protein and amino acids to the cells because it does that job also. You're actually going to end up with an impaired insulin production issue. Your beta cells go dormant. They start turning off because they're not needed. So the body will always downregulate what's not needed. It's an energy management, energy conservation process. And the body will always conserve energy. So now you're not using your, your pancreatic beta cells 
as much um, and for the production of insulin. And you start down-regulating that and genetically down-regulating that. And then eventually now there are studies showing that you, to some extent, you may permanently down-regulate some portion of the pancreatic beta cells. We used to think it would just be transient. And of course, if you start reintroducing carbs, you may have to be careful at first because you may not be able to produce the insulin to manage those carb loads and you could get high blood sugar, even though you are not coming from it from this longstanding insulin resistance standpoint. You're just now not producing enough insulin. But now it turned out, depending on how long you've taken this, you may have permanently turned off some of those beta cells and you may have permanently impaired your ability to produce insulin when needed. Now, the other case where I see this is individuals who aren't consuming enough protein, i.e. almost everybody I see at intake and who don't have insulin resistance and are very you know, clean with their diet and they're doing longer intermittent fasting and they'll have this very low fasting insulin signal. And when I explain to them the issue and we go through it, it turns out really my main focus for them is the protein and building up muscle. And, they'll, and we'll often commonly see that their hormones aren't optimal, like thyroid conversion of T4 to T3 is not optimal. Maybe testosterone is a little downregulated. Growth hormone's not optimal. And when we just get them eating more protein, which does create an insulin signal, really eating maybe more food and protein, maybe some complex carb, and they repeat their blood work, their fasting insulin is now in the normal range, not high. Their A1Cs are better than they were. Actually, they've dropped a little. And those hormone levels have improved. So it's about that balance, which is your point. You know, we can end up with blood glucose dysregulation from either side of that equation. One is we're not responding to insulin well because we've been making too much of it all the time and we may have high insulin already. The other is we end up with the actual insulin producing cells in the pancreas underperforming, which is also an issue of aging that can really impact blood glucose as we're getting older. So we want to be right there in the middle where the system's working as it's supposed to in balance, which typically means that we're going to be eating at adequate protein, plenty of protein, and that unless we have specific medical reasons, we're going to continue to include some forms of healthy, complex natural carbohydrates in our diet. So it sounds to me like the best I can do is exercise and eat more balanced, just be cognizant of balancing out the protein, the carbohydrates, and then not overdoing it with the crappy refined sugars. And instead of just going extreme one way or the other, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm hearing. I mean, if we really did just get rid of all the highly processed foods and the foods were organic, non-GMO, natural, not covered in toxicants and poisons, which also disrupt the system as well. Right. Um, and if we could just do that and then get used to seasoning food properly and preparing it where it's still tasty and chewing it thoroughly and eating mindfully. Yeah, we fix all these problems. Yeah. And then we don't have to run from any one particular food group, right? We can, hey, we're good to go. That's the fix for everybody. It also does the same job that Ozempic does with regulating appetite and turning off, hyper, you know, the uh, inappropriate, you know, inadequate satiety signals and overconsumption and all that kind of stuff. It fixes the whole thing if we'll just do that. So it's interesting that you mentioned Ozempic because, you know, I heard, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, because uh, I want to talk about some supplementation for glucose regulation, which you can't talk about now without talking about berberine or berberine, however people want to say it. And mm -hmm. that I've even heard it called the poor man's Ozempic. Mm -hmm. um, so 
what is this supplement? What is it doing? And is it something that, um, is it a, is it a waste of money? Is it, uh, or can it be beneficial? Not again, not establishing a patient, uh, doctor relationship right now, Dr. Gus, I'm just asking about how, whatever the disclaimers are we need to make to not get ourselves in trouble. I just want to know about this particular supplement. Yeah, I'm a big fan of berberine or dihydroberberine, depending on your tolerance. Um, berberine is a botanical uh, um, compound molecule. It has a number of potential health benefits. One, it has gut antimicrobial effects. So for some people who have overgrowth of, you know, kind of bad guy commensal bacteria or pathogens, sometimes berberine in combination with other natural antimicrobials can aid in pruning those bad guys back. So it has that potential. Same time, the main side effects to berberine are actual gut side effects. Some people notice gastrointestinal intolerances, diarrhea, abdominal discomfort, nausea. Now, the other form, dihydroberberine, which has already been metabolized into a form that is actually more absorbable. It's something that the gut biome does with berberine itself, can reduce those side effects and possibly have increased potency uh, as an option if you don't tolerate regular berberine. And what berberine ends up doing is a number of potential beneficial things, but I don't think you need it all the time if you're a healthy person. One, it has that gut antimicrobial impact, which might be helpful for a person depending on their gut biome. Two, it's a fasting mimetic, meaning it kind of mimics the fasting state because it's an activator of the AMPK genetic pathway which is sort of the catabolic fasting autophagy genetic pathway as opposed to the mTOR pathway that, you know, we're kind of going back and forth in those states. Now, that doesn't mean you eat a bunch of food uh, multiple times a day and take berberine that that suddenly will <laughs> give you the equivalent of a fasting state. Please don't understand that. That's not <laughs> the point. But it does help to counterbalance a little bit, and it can really complement uh, people using intermittent fasting, using berberine in conjunction with intermittent fasting as a way of trying to get more activity into that into that MK pathway and potential, potentiating some of those benefits of fasting states a little bit more. There, there's not a lot of great data to support this, but it might have some, you know, appetite uh, impacts, meaning maybe you become less hungry. Maybe that's due to improvements in glucose uh, disposal, how you're moving, utilizing glucose in your body and getting it into your cells. I don't know. I haven't seen much in the way of that in terms of people really noting that it's very helpful for appetite control the way Ozempic is. But the other thing that it has the ability to do is lower blood glucose when you eat. And so it can improve the ability to get the glucose into the cells where they need to go. And that can be quite powerful depending on the individual and how they're absorbing it. So I've had individuals who have a, say, a hemoglobin 1C of 6.8, and they're getting postprandial glucoses of 170, 180. So they're type 2 diabetic. It's considered not optimal control. Um, you know, I consider that pretty severe, but it's not considered severe in the diabetic space, but we want to get this completely reversed. And so we could, and there would be an option to add a medication like metformin, which is a great medication and is very popular in the longevity circles for various reasons. Studies are mixed on whether it's a great longevity drug or not. And there's a real question if it is, is it primarily because of the impact on insulin resistance and glucose right. disposal? And we can look at some of the genetics for metformin and predict whether you're likely to be a good responder or not and whether or not you're likely to get side effects. So we can use that to personalize it. They're not perfect, but they're helpful. 
But, you know, some of these individuals would start metformin. Their genetics would suggest they're not a great responder to metformin. And their blood sugar didn't really change meaningfully with metformin. But then we could take them off of metformin and put them on berberine and have them dosing it, you know, at the proper dose, uh, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 milligrams, depending on the brand you're using and, you know, how concentrated it is, uh, pre-mill. And they would end up having notable drops in postprandial blood glucose, post-eating blood sugar. So you can use it sometimes as a first stage treatment in patients who are developing either prediabetes or diabetes to lower blood glucose. You can use it if you don't have blood glucose dysregulation as a way of enhancing uh, fasting and amplifying AMPK and potentially improving the ability to catabolize fat and lose weight. So there's a lot of potential tools. None of those statements have been evaluated by the FDA, by the way. Okay. <laughs> um, just so you know, I'm not making any claims that there have been, you know, F- double-blinded controlled studies and past the FDA that where berberine could be used for those reasons. I'm just telling you that's what we've seen it useful for. And there's a lot of data to suggest it could be used for those reasons. So I'm a big fan of berberine or dihydroberberine, especially in individuals who have prediabetes or diabetes. Um, and honestly, in healthy people who periodically want to amplify the impacts of you know intermittent fasting when they're going to do that uh, and using it for, say, pulstosis, maybe for six weeks and then come off of it for a couple of months and then do it again. Yeah, that's what I've used it for is... Um... I mean, I think I have noticed, I mean, it's, it's been so long since I ate breakfast on a regular basis. Uh, but that's what I do is I, I generally, two times I'll take it either one, if I'm going to a meal that I think is going to be really carb heavy, uh, I'll, I will take some berberine before I go have that meal. And then also as a, someone who intermittent, intermittent fasts on a regular basis, I'll generally take it. And this is, I, I want to know if you think I'm doing the right thing here. I take it the night before um, that I'm going to, and, you know, so I, let's say I stop eating at 7 p.m. And then I will, after I finish my meal, then I'll take my night, you know, supplements, which are, are, are quite a few and of which will be Barbarine. And then I use that to enhance through the night and then into, you know, my, into my feeding window the next day, which will usually begin around noon. Is that a, is that, does that make sense? Am I doing the right thing? It actually makes a lot of sense to use it as part of your evening repertoire, unless it causes gastrointestinal issues. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I got a question about that, Gus. So I, I was, uh, complaining to you a couple of weeks ago about upper GI, something like I have not had any form of reflux or anything like that in so long. It used to be a regular problem of mine because. I didn't pay attention to my gut. I didn't do all these. Now it's just almost unheard of for me to have reflux or anything. I don't get heartburn or reflux necessarily. I get the reflux that's extremely painful, goes into my chest and feels like, you know, the heart attack symptoms really bad. And I'm trying to isolate it to, I can't, I haven't like added any supplements. I haven't added anything, but do you think it could be, I did just get a new type. I think I switched to, um, Maybe it's thorns berberine. It's a new one. Um, do you think it could be the berberine of, I mean, I know I could probably list out everything. I mean, is that, is that one of the gut? It's not the typical thing that I would okay. anticipate, say, reflux. Okay. But it's possible because anytime you're putting supplements and botanicals into your stomach, you could end up, you know, possibly creating a reflux situation by just putting things into your stomach at a time where you're close to bedtime. Are you talking about? It's close to bedtime and you lay down and it happens. Or are you talking about you're sitting around after dinner and it happens? After dinner, 
I mean, I've like, I've taken, and I, and I, that's what I need to really pay attention to. Cause I'm wondering if it was on nights that I took it before dinner, thinking it was going to be a pretty carb heavy meal. And then, the, and it, it, it's very rare, but just now I'm so sensitive to this, any malfunction in my body, any sort of discomfort, I'm very sensitive to it. And that's one that, because I worry so much about my gut health, I just can't figure out what's causing that. So I was wondering well, if it I'm might. I'm really curious because as you know, from our discussions on my, on the gut health reports, which you'll be uh, getting, um, typically in the, to the forties and fifties, we see substantial reductions in digestive function, just mm -hmm. in healthy people, right? Just right. part of aging. And that's usually where if we'll add digestive enzymes, when you're eating more food, you'll mm -hmm. digest more better and reduce reflux symptoms. So we end up not needing suppress stomach acid, but actually support gastric function and pancreatic exocrine function, the uh, digestive enzyme portion. So it could be something to do with just simply, you know, Jason's, he's never going to be getting older. He's never going to go to 50, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, he did go to 48 and that for in the average 48 year old will have some reduction in digestive function, no matter how healthy. And to some extent, you know, with the way that you uh, manage your diet and don't eat a lot and, you know, things like that, you know, that can impact it too. Um, but I think that's the better side of the equation to be on. You and I both agreement or agreement on that or in agreement on that. And it can just be happenstance. Yeah. Right? It can just be that you put food into your stomach and you weren't thinking about the moment that you actually bent over to grab cotton and pick them up. Right. And you actually just simply put a lot of pressure on your esophageal sphincter and you went and you put yeah. some stuff there, right like so sometimes it's just when it's just kind of rare intermittent i'm like that's just part of life yeah okay okay i do i mean it usually will happen whenever i've had like more to eat than normal but sometimes i mean it wasn't um here recently it happened like right after i had finished the green monster i could not isolate any logical reason why it would be happening I don't think I was very anxious, which I know sometimes that can, you know, cause it. But, but anyway, so, all right, well, I don't well, want to make this thing is you're very, very busy. If you've picked up the pace of your eating and are eating faster, that can definitely cause it. So if yeah. you were really busy that day and you slammed down that green monster because you hadn't had time to eat and you yeah. moved on to the next thing, you'll absolutely set yourself up for reflux when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, it could definitely be that. And then one okay. other question though, is it, heartburn that feels like a heart attack or is it a brief period of like just intense gripping pain in the chest intense gripping pain in my chest that slowly comes on gets worse and worse and worse and eventually it'll subside how uh, long but, does it take how long does it take for it to come and then finally be go away i'd say all together half hour okay so that's more like reflux because sometimes you just get esophageal spasm yeah which is that like real intense nodding up in the oh, chest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've had that before, but no. Yeah. And yeah. that can be a important thing altogether. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, and it's, it just pisses me off because I am not supposed to have anything well, malfunction. Well, no. You know, I was in a, a medical school. <laughs> Shame to admit it, but this is the truth. And I was young. And I was coming out of a different stage of my life. I still smoked cigarettes. I drank beer at night, not every night because we were too busy to do that. And we ate terrible, terrible, terrible food, pizza, fast food. And I didn't know anything about nutrition. And so, and we were stressed and working all the time. Sure. So I started developing heartburn all the time. You know, I'd take tons and stuff like that. 
And then that's in the era where the proton pump inhibitors had come out as prescription only, Prilosec yeah. and then Nexium. Mm -hmm. And, you know, technically we weren't supposed to do it. We were able to get samples of them. They were prescriptive there, but we weren't. And they would knock your heartburn out. That's why they advertised them. Like yeah. They did. And I ended up like, oh, that's given me relief. Now, what I needed to do was quit smoking, uh, drink less beer less often, and start eating better foods and not be so stressed, right? And I, might, and I wouldn't have had a heartburn problem. Yeah. Well, it just became an easy solution. Now I got into, I finished med school. I go to residency. I get married. I have kids. I'm no longer like drinking a lot of alcohol. I did quit smoking. Nonetheless, I'm still just running like crazy and also having to eat fast and I haven't learned nutrition. So I'm still getting the heartburn. And the easy thing to do is just keep taking proton pump inhibitors until I learned over time what proton pump inhibitors can do to you. And I saw the patients who went from one a day to two a day to two a day plus two peps a day. And then they're going, still getting reflux and they're going back and getting scoped and there's atrophy of their stomach. And it's like, oh my gosh. And I realized I got to get off this stuff. And I weaned off of it. That was like you. I mean, you, well, you didn't go through that probably, but for me, that was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been 13, 14 years since I've ever taken a proton pump inhibitor or anything like that. And like you, I have a lot of pride around. I don't have, now that I do the right things for my body, I don't have those issues. Nonetheless, four, maybe five times a year, I get heartburn. Yeah. You yeah. get it. It's yeah. usually when I've been eating enough consistently. Yeah. I mean, it just stays this raw burning sensation. And I know that's bad for my esophagus. Mm -hmm. I know it's not good for me and it's uncomfortable. All I do is just mix baking soda and water and drink it. And that'll take care of it. I may have to do it a couple of times over four hours. And that takes care of and buffers it. But, you know, that's a rare thing for me, but I'll still get that occasionally. And I just like to use the baking soda and water solution because that's not bad for you in any way. So I want to talk about that as, re as it relates back to uh, glucose management, because I will say that uh, you made me think about something that it does come on whenever I've done my longer fast. Like the other day, I, did, I was right at hour 24 and I, that's whenever I had my Green Monster. And for those has, who haven't been listening along, Green Monster is my homemade uh, signature protein bowl of mush that I eat almost daily. And so I, so I had not had anything to eat and I have been pushing my fasts a little further mm -hmm. and I've noticed that. So, and, and I also will take a handful of, uh, my supplements with the green monsters. I'm piling a lot of stuff into my stomach yeah. at once. That's probably what it yeah. is. So that's a known side, like potential symptom that can develop as you increase fasting. In fact, I wrote about it in my book and right. my like, guide to how to, you know, how to start intermittent fasting and said, here are the things to watch for, which include hydration and electrolytes, you may get more reflux. If you okay. do, may try to use like baking soda first and see, because eventually you'll, it'll, it'll get better. But fasting will definitely potentially increase reflux symptoms. All right. So let's talk a little bit while we're on the topic about fasting, either intermittent, however you want to find it, having a defined feeding window and glucose management. Do, is that a good strategy? Mm, absolutely. Timing of feeding is critical in terms of so many of the impacts on the body, including metabolic health. And so I have these, in the body comp ebook, actually, the last page and a half are the timing principles of eating for everybody, regardless of intermittent fasting or not, which include foundation, like the most important foundational principle that everybody needs to try and do as much as possible, which is try to eat your evening meal as early as possible and not consume any food or beverage calories within three hours of bedtime. Might, maybe you'll have an herbal tea, something non-caloric, but try not to consume food or beverage calories within three hours of bedtime. 
not just because of the pronounced impact it can have on glucose dysregulation and insulin signal, but also because of this significant interference with the body being able to enter into the fasting state on the timetable during sleep, where you can complete the detoxification, autophagy, and cleanup processes the body is trying to get done, plus the pulses of growth hormone and other hormones to repair and recover tissues. You greatly disrupt that when you eat later in the evening. So that's always principle one. And then principle two, which has been shown to be quite helpful, is if you can push consumption of any calories, just calories, if you could have non-caloric coffee, teas, water, sparkling water, um, even amino acids, but to push any calories out one hour after weight. So those are those first two principles. And if you follow them correctly, then you're going to get to a 12-hour fast overnight, which to me is like the kind of minimum we should all be doing most of the time. We should have 12 hours where we did not consume any calories. That should be far for the course for everybody all the time. And that's not kind of the minimal period. When I first started teaching the intermittent fasting back in 2016 and 17, and my patients thought maybe I was insane because that was dangerous for them. Now they, you know, now thankfully everybody knows it's not. Um, you know, a lot of them, of course, were eating up until nine o'clock at night and then having calories, sugar and cream in their coffee or whatever at 6.30 in the morning. And so, you know, they were only fasting for eight, nine hours a day. So getting them to 12 hours was like the first step in intermittent fasting, even though that's not really intermittent fasting. That's just normal time feeding intervals. And then, of course, you might, uh, and then the idea was not to snack in between meals. Maintain hydration, maintain adequate salts and, and electrolytes, but do not snack. And then you would encourage people, uh, depending on their individual circumstances, to start pushing that morning period further and further or push the evening time earlier and earlier. Now, there's a net, there's a little bit of an extra benefit to just finishing eating much earlier in the day and then fasting through and then beginning to eat in the morning. But for a lot of people, that doesn't fit with family schedules, et cetera. So we're like, look, there's some benefit there, but not enough to make you like not sit with your family and have dinner because of all those benefits that come with that. But you could push it from either side but to try to get people to a 14 hour and then a 16 hour, and in some cases an 18 hour. Now we would do this because of all the different things that would get better when they would do this. One, they would learn hunger sensing and satiety, and they would begin to understand that they didn't have to eat every time they felt hungry. There were a lot of other things going on, and they begin to get some mastery or some control over how they approached food itself. Two, the longer they did it, the more that they Instead of like eating a big portion, because if they fast too long, they get really hungry and ravenous and then they overfeed and that becomes a detriment. And that's been shown in the studies. But if they do this slowly and measurably over time, you eventually you don't eat as much when you do eat because you just you get full faster. Your satiety regulation is improved. Blood sugar comes down. Insulin levels come down. Uh, inflammation comes down. People lose weight a lot easier. Many times they'll just start losing some weight. It'll usually plateau. But they'll get some amount of weight loss just from intermittent fasting. And then, of course, their body is detoxing better and there's more autophagy and there's all these other health benefits. Now, that's said, uh, unless somebody's got to lose an enormous amount of weight, there were pitfalls to that and that they push it too far and they just rely on the fasting. Well, then they don't, they're not getting enough protein, which is why we emphasize those amino acids, especially if we're going to do this, because if you compromise protein, then you're going to compromise a lot of other aspects of your health. And eventually you're just going to get really hungry and you're going to stop losing weight and you're going to lose muscle and run into challenges. Also, 
the individuals that were going to vigorously exercise, they were going to go to a CrossFit gym for an hour, six days a week, or they played a sport, or they still played, you know, uh, on a, uh, on an amateur soccer team and had practices and they're going to CrossFit or doing heavy weight training. Well, I didn't want them going to a 16-8 or a 18-6 type schedule. I wanted them really kind of sticking with a 12-12, a 14-10, because I really wanted to make sure they were getting more energy or at least nutrients and amino acids in their body earlier. So there's a lot of ways to do it. Now, on the other hand, the, the other side of it is if you have blood glucose dysregulation and you're on medications to maintain blood glucose control and you just start pushing a fasting window, you could get into low blood glucose and that can be dangerous and certainly at the least uncomfortable and the cause reflexive eating of high sugary foods and things like that. So there's this, you don't just kind of throw yourself in and wing it. You use a methodical process and you take your time and you play the long game and like everything we do and you gauge your body and its needs and you go back to our episode on micronutrients and protein and you see to it that you're not compromising nutrients while you do it. If you do that, if you follow the time principles of eating correctly and match that with everything else in lifestyle, you're going to get enormous benefits. You may choose to add intermittent fasting, meaning shorten your feeding window to six or eight hours only, or you may not choose to. You can get there either way if you're following the principles that we teach. But for individuals who are not going to change their food selection, they're just not go they're not going to be able to do that yet. The person we talked about earlier, well, I might do one thing for my diet and one thing for exercise. Well, and that's it. They're going to, and it's got to be the minimal. Well, we're going to get them walking and we're going to get them intermittent fasting because those two things alone are going to move the needle a good bit for them. Awesome. All right. So as we wrap this up, I think it'd be kind of fun to do something like a, because we talked a little bit about the biohacking with like my squats before and after or doing the, the walk. So let's do, let's take on a couple of like just, biohacks that are out there in the podcast world or wherever this stuff lives on social media that is supposed to help with glucose and metabolic management, in particular, glucose management. I want to see, I want you to answer, uh, absolutely do that or do it if you want to, or you're wasting your time. Those will be the kind of the categories. All right. So a big one that I guarantee you everyone listening to us is sick of hearing me talk about, being Greenfield talk about, Peter Atia, everybody, cold plunging. One of the things that people talk about for cold plunging is that it will help you manage your glucose levels. Absolutely. If you want to, don't waste your time. What's your take? If you want to. Okay. Yeah. I so, mean, I'm not, so in other that, words, I, that yeah. should not, like if, if, if I say I am, I am determined to manage my glucose level. So therefore I have to go invest in an $8,000 regulated cold, cold no, plunge. No, I, no, no, I'm wrong. No, no. I've got a lot of other more powerful things for you to do. That awesome. are gonna be meaningful. But if you are actually interested in all the other benefits of cold plunges, then sure. Why not? But no, that's not going to be top of my list. Okay. Another one is sleep. I've heard that if you can manage and maintain really good, healthy sleep, which is something we've talked about quite a bit together on the podcast and, and off the podcast, sleep, you know, managing and perfecting my sleep as best I can as a means of, of managing my glucose levels. Yes. That, no. That's like, a, that's a rhetorical. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yes. And yes, absolutely. And always not for just glucose, which it has a powerful impact on, but for every aspect of your health and your spiritual life. 
And one of the reasons why I want to bring that up is because I don't want people to think that when we're talking about metabolic health and glucose management, that you got to make all these crazy changes. Go to sleep. Just go, go get yeah. some really good sleep. Yep, that's it. Sleep and obviously breathing and those factors. Go ahead, continue your list. Infrared. Uh, so red light therapy, be it a blanket, be it a sauna, does this, does this help? So a sauna has a lot of health benefits and potential metabolic benefits. During the period of stress of the sauna, most people would observe their blood glucose goes up, not down. But they may have a reflex of lower blood sugar after. I, sauna is one of my top things for a lot of different reasons for health. It's not going to be the first thing on my list for blood glucose regulation, though. Okay. Okay. And this isn't so much to manage, but the level of importance, a lot of the, the gurus and experts are all wearing continuous glucose monitors. Now, Abby has one. She's a type one diabetic, but now you see a lot of just guys like you and I wearing them to really monitor. What do you think? Absolutely. If okay. you're willing to do it. And I was, I was glad you brought it up because I was going to say, if you want a tool, because you're not going to get a bunch of tests or anything right now, get a continuous glucose monitor. Um, Usually, you, there are some companies that'll sell them without a prescription. They're more, a little more expensive. Or if your doctor's helpful, they may just write you one cash pay, and you can with, use GoodRx and buy a Libra system for like eighty bucks for a month or something like that, possibly less. A continuous glucose monitor is absolutely one of the single best tools to understand many different variables around your health, They're not just glucose, because glucose teaches you a lot about stress, exercise, sleep how you breathe, all these different factors. So you can, we've talked about this before. If all we had was glucose and heart rate variability, we could probably program optimal health for the rest of our lives if we pay attention to those two variables. But the, what people learn with those monitors, especially because it's very common for the healthy person to come in, have a nice fasting insulin level, a normal fasting blood glucose, good looking lipids, but an A1C of 5.6. Like what's going on? Is it accurate? And then they start monitoring their fat, their glucose with the CBG. And what they find, especially if they are, they're over 40, is that even when they're eating healthy versions of carbs in a healthy meal, that their carb tolerance is reducing with age. So what they thought was, oh, that's just, you know, I ate a whole white potato that was cooked and I had just a little bit of butter on it and some salt and pepper along with uh, some fibrous vegetables and some protein. Pretty healthy meal. Potato is a great source of starch. And it turned out the whole potato is taking their blood sugar up to 160 and they had no idea. Half potato is only taking it to 115, right? So you start learning right now what are the, and some people, the potato causes it, but rice doesn't, right? Or vice versa. And so you just learn your specific carb tolerance to maintaining proper glucose and which carbs are more problematic for you. I love it. You can absolutely solve the puzzle by just following that back. Okay. Now some people will hear that and they'll be like, even at the Libra for 80 bucks or Medtronic or Dexcom rather, whatever, I just, it's too much money. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the poor man's approach and just go get a finger pricker and some test strips. I'm going to start testing my mind on my own and is waste my time. Eh, no, you could do not at all. You're just going to have yeah. to take a lot of readings. And by the time you use all those test strips and Lancet, you're going to spend more than you would have spent on the continuous glucose monitor because you're going to need to check your glucose, possibly pre-mill, 30 minutes after you eat, 60 minutes after you eat, 90 minutes after you eat, two hours after you eat, 
after you eat every single, I mean, you just are far better off. Just go with the continuous, make the one-time investment. Typically for somebody who doesn't have problematic, like serious props with glucose regulation, within two weeks, they know. They figured it out. They were like, oh, okay, I get it. So, and, and almost always everybody will figure out quickly that the, uh, that Hawaiian bread that they sell that you could put like little sandwiches on, mm. well, doesn't matter how good your system is, it will cause a glucose spike every single time. It's so good though. I haven't had any of that Royal Hawaiian. You know what it's called? Is that yeah, what? Royal Hawaiian. I was on a, uh, an, on a, like a three day ATV trip in West Virginia. Amazing, amazing, uh, wilderness trails back in there with my son and a bunch of other men and their sons. And this was, a uh, all day long grinding with four wheelers, ATVs, pulling them out of the bushes and getting, I mean, it wasn't just sitting in pushing a gas pedal, right? It was physical work and we weren't stopping to eat. So, and I hadn't eaten that morning. So I had a little fasted all day. I was lean and healthy at that point in time. And we burned 1,000, 1,200 calories. And I had on a continuous glucose monitor. <laughs> My blood sugar at that time is like 68, you know, it's, which is not hypoglycemic. I eat two miniature sandwiches on Hawaiian rolls with some turkey, <laughs> some cheese, you know, that one of my friends had. I eat those two little sandwiches and within 30 or 45 minutes, my glucose went up to 180. Oh right? my gosh. And that's somebody whose glycogen tank is empty, who's metabolically healthy and should pr pr respond to insulin quite well. And now it cleared fast. Yeah. 30 minutes later, it was back down. But nonetheless, I was like, holy cow. <laughs> wow. So, so, so what you're saying is we won't be bringing them on as a sponsor anytime soon. Got it. No. Yeah, that. Well, and what it told me is that almost all of the sugar added, just typical breads in the grocery store mm -hmm. that and texturized and all that, that people don't know it, but they are having significant glucose spikes after they eat those foods yeah. every single time. And then if you go to the subway and you eat a hoagie roll, can you imagine what that's doing to your blood sugar? Yeah. And these are people who go in to their fasting glucose for their physical and it's 90 and they're like, oh, you don't have a problem. It's all good. They're developing the problem. Those foods are highly problematic. All right. One last question. I have heard tell that if I eat a handful of, say, walnuts or macadamia nuts about 30 minutes before a carb heavy meal, that this can help to not spike my uh, glucose levels. True, false, crazy town. And eh, go ahead, maybe. Uh, tiny. I mean, meaning okay. the, the you know, the fiber and the fats that you put into your gut theoretically could uh, impact the glucose absorption curve. You might not absorb it as quick, but I think that's a lot of trouble to get to go to. And there's a lot of excess calories if you're trying to maintain a low calorie diet. My preference is you just use proper food meal sequencing if you're going to eat some form of starch, eat protein and fiber first. That's what's going to slow down the gastric emptying, slow down the movement of everything into your gut. And that's, again, with the glucose monitor, a great experiment you can run is maybe rice is your favorite food and you want to eat rice. And it turns out, man, I get glucose spikes with rice. Well, play with the time. Mix more protein and fiber in and see what happens. Have protein and fiber to some extent first, then have start mixing in your rice and see what happens. And a lot of times people can see very meaningful shifts in that blood glucose distribution curve, uh, blood, uh, range when they just simply uh, uh, change that timing of how they eat. So, all right, so here's what I've got. Get moving. It, as, as it relates to managing your glucose levels, folks, get moving. 
if you're willing to exercise, push some heavy objects, do some weightlifting, do some, mm-hmm. it, just drain those, um, those glycogen tanks of your muscles, you know, make some room to, to put that stuff. Don't eat within three hours of going to bed. Try to stop eating three hours before you go to bed and then give yourself an hour after you wake up before you consume any calories whatsoever. Balance your meals. Don't stay in a perpetual state of ketosis unless you're metabolically challenged. You really got a lot of weight. You got to try to get off. You can use a keto diet for a little while. It's good. It's and you know, but just as a long-term solution, your pancreas, like so much of the rest of your body, it's a use it or lose it, or your body will at least just say, Hey, you're not using it. Okay, fine. Then we're just going to, we're going to go put that energy somewhere else. Um, or if you're doing it for say a neurodegenerative condition or cancer or something like that for that period of time that you're managing. Okay. Uh, if you can, uh, if you have the means and you're willing to get a continuous glucose monitor to see where you are and to test the foods to kind of, and the cool thing about that and what I love hearing you say, and I've heard this as well, like oatmeal which is supposed to be pretty low on the glycemic index, it spikes Abby's, um, her, 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 her glucose levels big time. So that's just something she found out. You can customize your diet to, uh, if you're willing to do that. And if, you, if you're not willing to spend the money, you can go get the, the, just the regular manual version, but you're probably going to spend the same amount in the long run and you have a lot more finger pricks. I know that. Um, get good sleep. That never changes. Always get good sleep. Eat whole foods, either foods that once walked on four legs or grew from a tree or grew out of the ground, grew out of some dirt with it organic at, at any time you can. What what else what else am I missing here as far as uh the things we talked about? Yeah, getting outdoors, natural outdoors. Yep. Yeah, you no, know, I mean that's a long conversation, but spiritual health, stress mm-hmm. medication, relaxing, not you know, all these different things. And some of these are the high performer who's not stressed per se, but who's just constantly going after it. They're going after it in business and in fitness, and they're they're waking up and they're doing a cold plunge, and then they're hitting the gym, and then they're doing a sauna, and then they're you know going, and then they're chasing you down, you know, down the. That's tiger crazy talk. I don't know anyone like that. Yeah. Right. And so these individuals are like really healthy and driven and they look great, but they're actually potentially developing blood glucose issues because they're running so much adrenaline and cortisol through your system all the time. So stress medication, maintaining a healthy body weight for you, proper breath. I mean, the list, everything that impacts health. You know, the Body Comp book does in those last few pages cover a lot of these timing principles and some of the ideas around the intermittent fasting and how to use that properly. And in the chapter, the nutritional chapter, and the, uh, of my book, the authentic health book that's available as a free download or for purchase or whatever, it really covers this well. Also, it's, uh, it's a chapter that you could read and, and it basically gives you this information, um, in a, in a way that you can just kind of, you know, slowly work through it and understand it, but the movement and the sleep, the timing of how you eat and the quality of the foods, those are the big ones always. Awesome. Well, and by the way, I'll put a link to, if somebody wants to download the ebook again in these show notes, um, and I keep my copy on my desk at all times. It's become just kind of like a quick reference folks. I'm not just because Gus and I are really good friends, great book, easy to understand. All the principles are there and it's always good to go back to it. If you have questions on different things on how to get good sleep, he's mentioned several times breath work. What does that mean? How do you, how do you start a breath work practice? How do you, you know, what are these things that you can do to move the needle on these areas of health? It's a great, great resource for that. So uh, I think that, I think we've covered it, Gus. Did, did I miss anything? 
No, no, it's just we did this in the earlier portions of these podcasts because of how critically important this is. If somebody were to say, hey, well, what are the top four or five variables to really get, you know, taken care of for healthy uh, aging? Um, everybody is going to have stable, maintain stable blood glucose levels, not high, not low, like a nice high glycemic, what we call glycemic variability is going to be on everybody's top four list. Yeah. Right? So it's critical. Um, and so this is really, really important. And I think the best way to figure yourself out is go get that famous glucose monitor and, and see what your system's showing you. And if your doctor will do it for you and just say you'll be willing to pay the cash rate for it, consider at the next blood draw saying, I don't want just a fasting glucose. I want a fasting insulin and a hemoglobin A1C. I want to look at that a little bit more carefully. There you go. And that's something too that, you know what? Um, I know we've gone through our reports. I don't think we, it might be good to kind of educate people on here is what a blood report should, like if you just go for a basic physical, like I just did at Hope, I, I go every year. Here are the things you want to make sure that are on there and here are the questions you want to ask. I know because we've gone through the ones that you look at, but to me, I was so, and I still am to a certain degree, I, I, I'm ignorant about going in, getting my blood work because most physicians, again, and we've said this before and I'm not knocking a lot of family practice physicians, but as long as you're within the suggested range, they may never even tell you anything unless they, unless, you know, your, uh, what your cholesterol levels are out of whack or something like that. They may just go, Oh, you're within range. And okay. And so I think it might be important to, I thought I had thought we could do that when we go through your blood work. Perfect. Good. Episode, but I thought that would be the perfect time to say, you know, we're going to go through all of your data together. Like one episode will be like big picture integration. What can we learn yep. about Jason from this? But one episode I thought would be. Now let's use Jason's data as a way of doing a, a deep dive into blood work and everything that we can learn about these different systems from it. And here's what you would get on an insurance-based physical. These are the few things you would get, and this is what you can learn. Here's what an expanded panel looks like, and here's why we look at these things. Perfect. I love it. All right. Well, that's another wrap, folks, for another Authentic Health Friday. The feedback that we've been getting on these, we're so grateful for. Please keep listening. Send your questions. We will cover any topic that you want to related to health and wellness, but we're until, until something changes, we're going to just keep on with Gus, just kind of building the blocks of health and wellness. And, and we hope you find these beneficial and we're going to keep coming at you. So thanks so much for listening, Dr. Gus. Thanks as always, brother. Thank you, Jason. And thank you audience for your time and attention. We consider it a privilege for sure. Uh, absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. It means more to me than you can possibly imagine. And if you enjoyed it, please consider going out to Apple and leaving us a five-star rating. That would mean the world to me. Also, follow me on Insta at Jason right now. And don't forget, download the Vitruvian Lab app. I mean it. I want to be your personal peak performance trainer. I want to help you improve always and always. Lastly, check out my newsletter, The Vitruvian Letter. You can subscribe at jasonrightnow.com. And until we meet again, please continue to endeavor to improve always in always. I'm out. <laughs>